This is day one of the 2010 Idaho Bible School. Our first period teacher is Brother Shane Kirkwood. His general subject is our Lord's last week. Today's topic is she has done what she could. Brother Shane. Thanks, Brother Jeff. Good morning, everyone. I hope we're all feeling nice and refreshed after uh, a night's sleep. Well, this subject is a wonderful subject. It's a subject I'm overawed by. It's a difficult subject to talk about. And I hope you'll uh, bear with me as we go through this subject. But it is a subject we need to talk about because it directly impinges on our own discipleship. There's a vast amount of the Gospels which speak about the Lord's last week. So this week, obviously, I'm not going to be able to deal with all of it. In fact, I'm hardly going to deal with any of it. It would take much more than six 40-minute sessions to deal with everything that happened in the Lord's last week. So I've picked out just a few incidents and try to bring them together for us to get a feeling for the Lord's last week or our Lord's last week as I asked them to title it. A little bit of background before we get into the actual last week itself. In Luke 9... It says in verse 51 that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that was about five or six months before the Lord actually arrived in Jerusalem, but he had to determine to take that path which would eventually find him in Jerusalem to fulfil what he must do in laying down his life. So he set his face to go toward Jerusalem and there was an intense period of five or six months preaching that he undertook as he made his way to that city. And then in Mark chapter 10 verses 32 and 34 it gives us a bit more of the background. And it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. But you know, they never understood that. He went right over the top. He was very, very clear about what had to happen to him. But they had no comprehension of it. And in Luke, in Luke chapter 18, it says, 
and they understood none of these things. And this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. And that's a really important scripture to keep in our head as we look at our Lord's last week. Because if we don't remember those verses, we're likely to judge the disciples much more critically than we ought to. To give a little bit of context for ourselves here this week, I want you to imagine we've all come here from different places from around the world and we're joining together for a wonderful week of fellowship just as they travelled up to Jerusalem from the Passover from different places of the Roman Empire. And so in their mind, all these people are thinking it's going to be a great time of fellowship at the Passover. There were literally millions of people who went to Jerusalem at Passover. So we've come here to Idlewild. Imagine if as the week unfolded, something started to go dramatically wrong. The person who we'd put most of our trust in, who had been able to deliver us from every difficult circumstance we'd encountered in the last three and a half years, as the week unfolded, was arrested. So the authorities come in here to our camp as we're enjoying fellowship and they arrest one of the people at the Bible school. How would that change your perspective on this week? I think it would change our perspective dramatically. It would be all we could talk about. Not only were they arrested, but as the week unfolded, they were tried, they were tortured, and eventually, somewhere up on that hill, they were taken, stripped naked, and crucified in public. How would you feel? Would that change your perspective on this week? Wouldn't you be absolutely devastated at that? You see, we've come here with no expectation of that happening, have we? Nobody said to us as we're going to Idlewild, oh, by the way, do you know what's going to happen by the end of the week? Somebody's going to be taken and crucified at your camp. I do that by way of us trying to get some context for the events that unfolded in this last week. If we could put ourselves in that situation, we can then begin to understand the impact that these events had on the Lord and his disciples. Perhaps another way of viewing it is to think of this week as being the beginning of the last week of your life. That by the end of this week, you're going to be dead. How would that? impact the way you're thinking. So we can see it from two perspectives. From the disciples' perspective, if someone was taken and crucified at our camp, and from the Lord's perspective, if we begun to believe and to know that at the end of this week, 
our life would be over. And so Jesus began that trip that would eventually take him to the city of Jerusalem for his crucifixion. He is walking into the enemy's camp. He'd been selected ahead by the authorities as the Passover lamb. He was the one they wanted to slay more than any Passover lamb. And so Jesus walked and as he walked, the disciples were afraid. You know, sometimes when we look at the disciples and we think, why didn't they understand? We really only need to think about ourselves in relation to the Lord's return because so many things are going on around us and yet at times we're not even aware. The events unfold and it's almost like we have a mental block about the Lord's return and it will happen. Just as surely as his crucifixion was going to happen, the Lord's return will happen. And he's warned us time and time again and he said, watch, be ready, be alert. And yet somehow or other, if you're like me, it just goes over the top, doesn't it? So again, we can make a connection with the disciples and how they were thinking. So the Lord continues this journey And he tells them a parable just before the beginning of the last week. And in Luke chapter 19, he enters Jericho and we have the story of Zacchaeus. But down after the incident with Zacchaeus, we find in verse 11, it says, And as they heard these things, he added and spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So that's another verse to keep in your mind as we go through our Lord's last week. They didn't understand about his arrest and his torture and his crucifixion. But more than that, it wasn't just that they didn't understand, it was they actually believed that the kingdom of God was about to dawn. You bring those things together and you can see why they had such a difficulty when the Lord was taken and finally killed. Over in John, as we get a little bit closer to eventually the Lord's last week and in John chapter 11, a little bit more information by way of background. Verse 55, it says, And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think you, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, He should show it that they might take him. So again, we had a little bit more information to the background. There was a debate going on as they went out of all the surrounding districts and they travelled up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The debate raged. 
Because, of course, you remember that the Lord had risked his own life to raise Lazarus from the dead. And you throw that into the mix of all these events and you can understand why there was so much anticipation. Will he come to the feast? Jesus of Nazareth that raised the man from the dead. Is it too risky? Do you think he'll stay away? And behind it all, underneath all these layers were the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they sent out a message that filtrated through the community. And they said, listen, if anybody knows, it's a commandment from the top, we would say. If anybody knows where he is, you give us the information. We want to take him. Now, of course, there were people who were willing to be bought. The information could be paid for. You throw that into the mix of all the other verses we've just briefly looked at. So Jesus eventually comes toward the city of Jerusalem, knowing of all these things, the disciples' complete unawareness of what's about to happen, their belief that he's about to establish the kingdom, the scribes and the Pharisees putting out the information about someone coming and showing where Jesus was. He comes, it says, in John chapter 12, at last, six days before the Passover, he came to Bethany. Bethany is that little town about two miles from Jerusalem where the Lord had been before and where there was a loving family. There was an environment where the Lord could feel among friends. And I want you for a moment to think about Bethany in contrast to Jerusalem. If I was the Lord, I would have just wanted to stay in Bethany, two miles out of town. Because there was fellowship, there was friendship, there was understanding, there was comfort. There was all of those things that he was never going to get in Jerusalem. Down there in the city of Jerusalem was hatred, was malice, was anger and was eventually torture and crucifixion. Would you choose to go into that valley? That's why he had to set his face. The Lord was no cardboard cutout. It was like us. And at times in our lives, we have something difficult that we have to do. What are we going to do? The example of Jesus is we have to set our face to do it. And so he comes to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. And we're told that it was the house of Simon the leper. Both Mark tells us that and also Matthew. It's the house of Simon the leper. Now we don't know whether Simon had been cured by the Lord and we suspect he may have been because there was no other way that you could get rid of leprosy. This is also an interesting fact emerges that Judas is called Simon's son. This may also have been the house of Martha and Mary, so it could have been the whole family, or it may have been that Martha and Mary's house was another house and this was a, 
a separate house which could accommodate the Lord. Nevertheless, all of these people were there. Bethany means the house of the afflicted. Lazarus means God is helper. And as he comes there, it says, they made him a supper and Martha served. Not on another occasion, in, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 10, verse 41. You may, may remember the occasion when Martha served and she wanted that Mary should serve also. And she spoke to Jesus about it. And Jesus, on that occasion, said to Martha, 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 you're careful and troubled about many things. And oh, we can relate to that, can't we? We're so often careful and troubled about many things in our busy 21st century lives. But on this occasion, Martha was happy to serve. And that's a very important function in our ecclesias. You know, this whole thing wouldn't happen without people serving in all the various capacities. And you can only imagine what Martha and Mary felt for the Lord because he'd raised their brother from the dead. You know, their hearts were overflowing for what Jesus had done for them. And Lazarus was there as one of them and he sat at the table with Jesus. Now, this is just a remarkable thing. Imagine sitting in a meal where someone had actually been raised from the dead. It, there's a sense of unreality about that, that you could actually be sitting opposite him, sharing a meal with someone who you'd actually seen had been dead and been dead for four days. So it's quite a remarkable supper that's going on here. But at that meal also was Mary. And Mary had a problem. Mary understood that the Lord was going to die. Alone among those people, she understood. How do you say goodbye to somebody you know is going to die? Not just going to die, but die in the most awful way. How do you say goodbye to somebody you know that's going to happen to? How did Mary know that the Lord was going to die? Because in Luke 10 verse 39, it says that she sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his word. Mary loved Jesus. When you love someone, you listen. And that's what she did. So over the, the course of time, as she'd sat and listened to the Lord and conversed with the Lord, she had gleaned that the Lord was going to die. That's a great example for all of us. How often do you sit at the feet of the Lord and listen? How often in our busy lives do we actually sit down and just let the word penetrate our hearts? so that he speaks to us, so that we understand what he means to us. 
Now, what was Mary going to do? You see, this room was full of testosterone, right? This was a difficult situation. We're fortunate here, we've got a, a mix of male, female. This afternoon in the coffee clutch, it's not going to be all testosterone, right? Does a woman want to volunteer and come into the coffee clutch this afternoon and do something that is beautiful, but not something male? That's a risk. So she's seeing this and she's thinking, how do I express my love? But she must do something. Love must triumph, and that is the lesson of our Lord's last week. Love, in the end, despite all the torture and the pain and the suffering, love was triumphant. And that's the story of his life. So she's going to take a risk here. And love hurts. You ever been hurt by showing love? I'm sure all of us have. She's going to take a big risk because she sees the Lord the way he eventually would be, bleeding, dying for her and for all others. So she moves forward and it says she took a pound of ointment of spikenard. It's a, a large amount of spike mart in quantity a pound, but not just in weight, in cost. John says it was very costly. Spike mart is interesting. The word spike actually comes from the word faith. The Greek word for faith is pistis. The word for spike is pistic. It's derived from the word for faith. So what we're looking at here is faith ointment. This was going to be a faith anointment of her Lord. So she takes this alabaster box, we're told. Something that contained something very, very precious. In today's market, worth about $30,000, if you can fathom that. She took that. And it says, there came a woman in Mark having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box. It's symbolic of Mary and the way she felt. You see, she wanted to display her love. So what she does is she breaks open the box, which is really in a way a symbol of herself of her feeling, of her emotion, of her innermost being. She is so focused on this man that when she breaks open the box, it's like she's pouring herself upon the Lord. She breaks open the box in front of this room full of men and Mark says she poured it on his head. So it just ran down through his hair, through his beard, down his garments, down his body. John says that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. 
you know, that's where we get the expression today of to let one's hair down. You know, when someone says, I'm going to let my hair down, it means they're going to be extravagant in what they do. This was an extravagant thing to do. It was lavish, particularly in the context of that room. Song of Solomon 1, verse 12 says, While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. And that's how she felt. This was her king. You think of Psalm 133, the anointing of the high priest that runs down through his hair, through his beard and down to the skirts of his garment. And all that imagery comes through in what Mary's doing here. She reached out and she touched her Lord and with her glory, with her hair, she wipes his feet. And a beautiful odour filled the house. What an amazing thing to do. Mary opening her heart. Just imagine if she'd never done that. Have you ever wanted to give someone something, someone really special to you, and you just couldn't work out when to do it? You, you, you had an opportunity and, and you weren't sure of the risk of exposing yourself, and so you didn't do it. How do you feel? Could you imagine if Mary hadn't taken this risk, if she had sat there and debated with herself and said, I can't do it in this room now, it's not the time, there's too many men, it's too risky, it all could go wrong, I'll wait another opportunity, and it never came. And she was left with a box that she never opened. And emotions that just were inside herself that she wouldn't be able to deal with. It's a great lesson about love, about taking risks, about seizing an opportunity to express ourselves, even at the risk of condemnation. But to some in the room, it was a waste. And you could scarcely believe they'd say that. But sometimes we're no different. It says, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. I just want you to imagine for a moment this scene. So she goes out openly, publicly, and exposes herself because of her love. And while she's opening out, while that alabaster box is broken and the perfume fills the house, while she's opening out, he's closing down. He's a complete contrast to her. He's inward, she's outward. He's a thief, she's a giver. $30,000 worth of ointment. He's got the bag. He's closing it. She's opening. And they're across the room from one another. 
Sometimes people do things we don't understand in the service of the Lord either. Try not to be a Judas. Fight against that spirit of condemnation. The other disciples joined in. There was a chorus of criticism. They said the same. How would Jesus respond? Now, just for a moment, try and take the Lord's position. Six days out from your death, you would just be so over it, so completely over these disciples. Don't you understand by the end of the week I'll be dead? Can you not for a moment enter into this woman's feelings? I've had enough. But he didn't do that. The patience of the Lord is remarkable. He doesn't say that. In fact, all he does is the only recorded condemnation of Judas we have in Scripture. Jesus says, let her alone. Just leave her alone. Against the day of my burying, she has done this. Because they said, look, this could have been sold for 300 pence and given to the poor. He said, you have the poor with you always. But me, you won't have always. There's another indication that he's going to die, but they weren't listening. She has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Oh, that's a wonderful verse. Do you know one of the reasons why spike nut was so costly? Because it had the most lingering fragrance, particularly in a hot climate like the Middle East. Some perfumes don't last. This one does. You think for a moment about this. She had chosen so carefully. Some people put a lot of thought into gifts, don't they? I never seem to be able to think of, of what to give and it always seems to be inappropriate. But this is, this is a, a woman's intuition. Brethren, take note of this. This is a woman's intuition. There are some things women do that we just really can't come anywhere near. So what was she thinking when she broke open the box? I'll tell you what she was thinking. She was thinking they're going to take him. They're going to torture him. And by the end of the week, he's going to be on a cross. What can I give that will last? Think about that. Something that will last. So often we want to give a gift that will last. Think about what the Lord went through. And then think of this. They could never take away her gift. Why? Because it became part of him. When it runs through your hair and down through your beard, 
It mingles in with you. So when they took him and they beat him and they spat on him and they grabbed hold of his beard and they tried to pull it out and they stuck a crown of thorns on his head, around that man was the lingering fragrance of Mary's gift. And when they took him to the site to be crucified and they stripped him naked and they nailed him to a cross, there was Mary. They couldn't take away what she'd given. They couldn't undo her expression of love. It would stay. He said, she's done it for my burial. She understands. She's entered in. More than that, he said, she has done what she could. She couldn't stop the process. It had to go through. She's done what she could. You know, the Lord could have said, oh, Mary, don't worry. Don't spend $30,000 on that precious spike nard. I'll be raised in three days. What a powerful lesson it is that he didn't say that. Why? Because love changes our priorities. It changes our perspectives. You see, sometimes we give something and at the time we think I've overdone it. But over the course of time, the gift itself becomes far more meaningful. And that's what the Lord is going to say about Mary. He says, do you know this? Wherever this gospel will be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she's done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. This gift isn't just for now. Yes, it will last through his hours of torture and pain and eventually on the cross, he'll still smell the scent of Mary's devotion. But that gift is more than that. It's a gift to teach us something. It teaches us about love, about taking opportunity, about doing what we can. So often people say, oh, there's nothing I can do. I don't have a gift. I don't have a talent. That is not true. It's not true at all. It had never been true. It's about us seizing the opportunity and looking for the opportunity. Day by day. What can we choose to do? We can choose to be like Mary and not like Judas. We can choose to love. Love is a choice. It's a difficult choice. Our community has not always been famous for love. I think that's an understatement, isn't it? But love is a choice. We can either close down or we can open up. That's what happened in that room. And yes, it's a risk. 
Love is a risk. It's always a risk. And you will get hurt. Do you know one of the remarkable things about the Lord? He loves like a man that's never been hurt. I find that amazing. I've exposed myself at times to the risk of of loving someone and and it's come back and it's rebounded and it's hurt me. And when that happens, how do we feel? We feel like, well, that's it. I'm not going to go there again. I'm not going to risk that. I feel hurt. I feel humiliated. I I can't deal with it. So we can close down. Jesus didn't do that. The hallmark of his character is that he got over that. He overrode it. Even in his most remarkable circumstance. So it is a risk. God chose to love. That's what the Gospels tell us. He chose to love at the risk of being hurt, at the risk of being rejected, and he is rejected by people all around the world. Did he close down to that? No, he didn't. He's still choosing to love now by calling people. Even though the majority of people walk away, the Father chooses to love just as the Son chose to love. And and it costs. There's always a cost with loving. Along with the risk comes the cost. But love will always triumph over the opposition, eventually, even though it took the whole week to unfold before the love was seen to triumph over the hatred and the wickedness. And so in that room, six days before the Passover, the thoughts and intents of many hearts were revealed. The lack of understanding of the disciples, the incredible devotion of Mary, the negativity and the criticism of Judas. In all that, the Lord remained committed to what he had to do. He still continued with the disciples, even though for most of us that would have blown the whole thing away. The fragrance of Mary's love lingers now. When it says it it filled the house, you think about how it lingers to this very day here now at Ottawa. As the fragrance of that and the emotion of that is captured in our minds as we sit here 2,000 years later thinking about her, talking about her, as the Lord said we would. Wherever the gospel is preached, he said, this will be told in memory of her. So we need now to identify with all of these characters as we begin to see the way they are going to interplay with each other, we begin to see their motives come to the fore. We begin to understand these men that he'd chosen who struggled 
against their own humanity and their own lack of faith. And at times they were thinking they could be so brave and yet they weren't. And being critical when they ought not. And then there's Judas to one side. Because, you know, Judas now had been set in motion. There had been in him this criticism because when a person speaks like that, it comes from the heart and he was a thief. And we can't colour that in any other language because Scripture doesn't. So what of Judas? He's made a wreck of Mary's devotion. But when the Lord rebuked him, as mild as that rebuke was, it was the one thing to tip him over the edge, to make him determined to betray his Lord. Because we're told, and Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went under the chief priests to betray him. Just think of Judas. He leaves that little house in Bethany, that place of comfort for the Lord. He's ruined. A wonderful meal. And now he's going to ruin his own life because he's closed down completely to the Son of God. He's shut off. He's thinking about himself. And so he takes a lonely walk. Oh, Judas, a lonely walk. He didn't see it as a lonely walk to start with, but he chose a path that would lead to his death. And so he goes to the chief priests and he says, I'm the man you're looking for. I've got the information. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. I think they'd done some homework on Judas, hadn't they? They'd been sussing out the disciples. I don't know if you use that term over here, sussing people out. They'd been sussing out the disciples. They'd found the weak link in the chain. They'd exploited a man they knew had a love of money. And it says, and he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So from that time forward, in that group was one man who was always looking for the opportunity to betray the Son of God in the absence of a multitude so that they might take him and put him to death without a public uproar. And for us now, what about service to the Lord? Think about what you've done in the last week. Have you done what you could for the Lord? You know, this week, when we talk about his life, we do so in his presence. Not physically, but we know he's here. He's among his people. He knows our motives. He knows our heart. He knows our service. Have you done what you could? When he comes back, what's he going to say to us? When he questions us about our discipleship. When he wants to know the reasons why we did and we didn't do things.
What do we say? The great lesson out of this wonderful incident is to be like Mary. To say to the Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. So often I was like the disciples that didn't understand. And I was afraid of being hurt. And I was afraid of opening up. And there were too many risks. Well, that's like the man who hit the talent in the ground, isn't it? He was afraid of his master. He's not a man to be afraid of. He's a man to love. Mary understood that. Now, let's be like her. So that when he comes back, we might hear from him the same that he said of Mary. I watched you work in my service. I knew your motives. Come into my kingdom. You did what you could.